Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, Josie Dominguez and I are joined by James David Gray. James is the head coach and owner of Scorpion Fighting Systems in Michigan. Over COVID, since 2020, uh, James has been one of the more outspoken critics of the COVID regime. I personally enjoyed it through the entire uh, you know, COVID response and everything that went into it. I loved seeing an MMA guy uh, stand up for what I thought was right. And in my opinion, he acted heroically. I really appreciate James joining us today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I'm joined by Josie Dominguez. Josie, how are you, sir? Doing good, doing good. How you doing? Doing very well. Really appreciate you coming on for this special uh, episode we have today. We have James Gray is joining us uh, from Michigan. James, how are you today? Yes, sir, man. I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. Um, I attended a Turf Wars card event, I think, in 2015. If I remember correctly, and I may be butchering this, I think you were scheduled to fight maybe the main event, something like that, maybe against Gableman or something. I don't know. I think a piss test was failed, something along those lines. You did not end up fighting. Does that sound right? Yeah, you're bringing up a bad memory. I'm I was sorry. <laughs> I was undefeated early in my pro career, and so was Gableman, and... Uh him and I were supposed to be the main event. And uh, by the way, not to trash on that kid because he, he could be a nice enough guy, but two days before the fight, he decides, Hey, I don't want to fight you at 35. You're going to have to cut to 30 flat or I'm pulling out of this fight. Really? So, and I already had a pretty substantial cut. Um, and then, so I agreed and I cut myself all the way down to 30 and it was a literal nightmare. And uh I made weight. Everything's good to go. I'm backstage getting my hands wrapped. I'm like in the process of getting my hands wrapped oh. to fight this guy in the main event. And the commissioner comes in and he's like, hey, you're not fighting. 
And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, take a look. I'm clearly fighting. And he's like, no, your opponent failed his pre-fight drug test. So the fight's off. And I'm like, can we make it an exhibition? Can me and that gentleman just walk out and fight with nothing on the line? Like I just drove down here all the way to, you know, I don't remember where the event was at. It was somewhere in Kentucky, I believe. Northern Kentucky, I think probably Florence. Yeah. So, and I had never worked with that league before. It was, the gentleman's name was Rob something. Um, but anyway, that ran the promotion Yep. and, uh, my family came down, they bought ringside tables. My dad, who is not a man of a lot of means, like came down and he bought two ringside tables for my fans. And, uh, it, you know, it was right before the fight. Like I said, I'm getting my hands wrapped. And, uh, so I went to Rob, the owner of the promotion. I was like, Hey, bare minimum. Can you just refund my family? Like they're going to drive home. It's not your fault. It happens. And he was like, no, sorry. All sales are final. Oh. So that was the last time I ever worked with that league or came down there, but that was just a quite the experience, you. man. Good for you for not fight, fighting again for them. Cause no, I mean, I'm a man of principle. Yeah, principle. I'm a man of principle. If they you screw that. me over or something like that, like I'm not going to work with you anymore. And you know what? Right. That's your right to say all sales are fine or whatever. But like you could have made a situation better and I would bring my team down gladly and I would work with you in the future. You do stuff like that. You show me who you are. You show me your integrity or you show me the decisions that you think are acceptable. And then, you know, I'll just, okay, no problem. We'll just go elsewhere. And uh, yes, I've never brought, brought my team back. Interesting. You know, at one point in 2014, when that event happened, I was there. Of course, we didn't know each other, but I was there when that happened. Rob, I forget his last name. It's slipping me right now. They were actually a sponsor for my AM FM radio show. Turf oh, really? Wars was. So Rob was the guy who paid me a check, cut me a check for sponsorship each month. It wasn't a, the longest lasting promotion. Uh, Josie, did you ever fight for Turf Wars? No, they came out. They were starting to get big right around the time I started to fade out. And so, uh, yeah, I was. I wanted to get a fight in there. I know a lot of my teammates fought for them. For I mean, honestly, while. the show looked great. I mean, they they're, they were professional enough. Everything was seemed fine. It's just in moments like that, like people's character comes out. And he had the ability to make a decision, be like, man, it sucks. I'm going to lose a little bit of money. But, like, this dude came all the way down from Michigan, met every term that we wanted, you know, brought his family, did everything the right way. I'm going to take care of him. And then, you know, I would gladly come down and fight again. But yeah, quite, quite the memory. What a way to start off the podcast. The worst, arguably the worst memory thus far of, yeah, your, for real, of your, your career. If we could back up a little, James, could you introduce yourself to the Kelly Patrick Show audience? Of course, you're the head coach for Scorpion Fighting Systems. But before that, where did you grow up at? I assume you're a Michigan uh, no, I grew okay. up in Philadelphia. Okay, I, I guess that's on the East Coast. That's that accent right there. I got it. Yeah, I was okay. born and raised on the East Coast. Uh, born in like downtown Philadelphia, like Brill Street, right down, you know, St. Mary's Hospital. And then family slowly moved to like the suburbs. Uh, grew up in a place called Levittown, Levittown and Langhorn. Um, a lot of people that are from the East Coast are going to recognize the area. It's actually where MPR gym is out of. Eric Purcell runs a great gym out there. They got Pat Sabatini. Um, Eddie Alvarez is training there a little bit right now. So, um, just, you know, a lot of fighting blood on the East coast. I don't know what to say. Uh, moved out to Michigan as a teenager, um, started my own team and yeah, now it's blown up. So I, uh, own and operate the Michigan Institute of Athletics in Brighton, Michigan, which has Scorpion fighting system as a part of the program. But we have kids, community members, yoga, like so many different branches of, uh, of our operation here. Um, I was an amateur competitor turned pro fought uh, a couple pro fights fought in brazil a few times that was quite the experience uh fought professionally in boxing twice uh competed in a lot of jiu-jitsu tournaments um but then just fell in love with being a coach and then i've trained five students from like damn near the beginning of the career or truly their first you know martial arts instructor all the way to the ufc 
Um, and we have a team of several hundred members now and a really active amateur and professional fight team. What sports did you play growing up, James? Uh, hockey was my favorite by far, but man, I played football. I played hockey. Um, I was, I, you know, I grew up in a different time than the world nowadays. So I was just always outside. It wasn't even just like organized sports. It was like you lived outside, you know, climbing stuff, running, playing like, uh, you know, just anything I could. I was ultra active as a child. I've always been pretty athletic. Um, although I was, uh, I'm a smaller guy, um, but yeah, just my entire life was always in, I wanted to be outside playing. I wanted to throw around football, play soccer. Like I was never on an actual soccer team, but like my family was obsessed with soccer and we played like side yard soccer all the time. Like, like every weekend we'd be playing soccer if I was at my anti-aunt's house. At what age did you start training combat sports? 14. So um, it was like 14 and a half. I was almost 15. Um, and I had done some boxing and stuff with my dad. My dad boxed on the Philadelphia circuit. He fought in golden gloves. Wow. So you know, uh, it was there, but honestly, it never really like attached to me hard, nor did he ever really try to push teaching boxing to me, he, you know, just some basics. This is how you hit someone if you have to stand up for yourself type deal. And then in uh, when I was 14, I found jujitsu through a friend and uh, just became obsessed. Like I was pretty depressed as a, a teenager from some stuff that had happened in my life. And it was like the first time that something hit me that like had a profound impact on my life. Like I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed playing a bunch of different things, but nothing ever gripped me the way that combat did. And uh, the moment I uh, started training jujitsu, I became obsessed with like pride back in the day, like watching those fights 24 seven, Marcelo Garcia, Kazushi Sakuraba, like, like the, the heroes of the early, early days, both in jujitsu and MMA, just, I don't know what it did, but man, it grabbed a hold of my consciousness. And it was like the only thing I could think about. I didn't give a shit about school. I didn't give a shit about anything else. I just wanted to be like, okay, I don't know how, but like my life is going to revolve around this one way or another. And uh, so, yeah, I'm 35 now. So that was 21 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's luckily worked out. What other type of work have you done? You sound like you're you're very educated. What, what, I mean, what level of education do you have? What, I know obviously this is your profession now, but you didn't know this the whole time. What else have you done? No. Yeah. So I just graduated high school and went and got my real estate appraisals license. At first I thought I was going to do real estate. And then in Michigan in the 0809, like things just absolutely plummeted. It was terrible. Um, I worked at a car dealership was my first job. I was just a porter, like, you know, drive the cars, wash them, clean out the gutters, you know, do all the like low level work around the, uh, around the place. But then I moved up through the ranks extremely quickly. I'll tell you a story for your listeners. If you want, uh, something I put myself on the line and it really opened a lot of doors in my life. Um, I remember I was a porter at this place called champion Chevrolet. And the owner of this place is like worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. He owns several dealerships, restaurants, commercial properties, residential properties. Like this man is extremely high level. And uh, he used to walk through the shop and I would always like, I would watch his mannerisms and the way that he was as a human being, the way he would treat people. And I, I like, I'm always trying to observe life and learn from the situations that I'm around. And uh, his name is Len Nadolsky. And one time he was walking through the shop. I'm just a porter vacuuming out of a car. I vividly remember this day. And he's going up to all of his employees, his employees. This is a man that's worth tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's like, hey, I have this cabin up north that I'm really trying to get ready for my family. And I w will anyone please come up? Like, I'll pay you. Like, I, I want to get my place up and running. Will someone come and help me get this going? And everyone, it was a Friday afternoon, like the typical boss thing. Like he's coming around like, you know, do you want to work more this weekend? And nobody wants to, right? And 
So this gentleman's going from like person to person and I'm watching, I'm cleaning this car and everyone's turning this guy down. Nobody wants to take on the extra work. First of all, I'm thinking in my teenage brain, I'm like, this man has built this entire empire that we work for. And it's not just like one store, like give him a hand. And he's like offering to pay you. He goes to all the different employees. They all say no. They all have an excuse why they can't. He goes to like the service representatives. They all can't. He goes to the technicians. They all can't. He's like, I can tell he's like visibly frustrated. Like no one here is willing to help. You know, I'm going to pay you. So anyway, he comes to me. I'm just like vacuuming it out of the car. And he, and I already heard the conversation. He's like, Hey, you know, I've got this. And I was like, yeah, of course I'll help. Like, tell me where I got to be. He's like, you will. I'm like, yeah, sure. So, um, anyway, he goes up front, gets me the keys to like this sick suburban or Tahoe. Like, you know, I'm driving a piece of crap car at the time. I don't really have nice things in my life. I'm making like seven forty an hour or something. <laughs> he gives me the keys to like this $50,000 car. And he's like, all right, take this car. Here's the address. Meet me up there. We'll be there. We'll work Saturday, Sunday. You know, I'll pay you for the time. So this story is going to tie together really well for the people that um, want to know how I got my first break. And uh, so gives me the keys. I go up there. I work all weekend. And it's like the easiest work ever. It was like clean the beach. Help me take out the ATVs and get them nice. Like sweep the porch. Like, I mean, not hard work. Just like put in the hours, right? He gave me, I don't even remember the exact amount, but the dude gives me like four or $500, which that would have taken me forever to make at my hourly rate, right? And I ask him a lot of questions. I kind of learn from him. Anyway, like a couple months later, a position opens up within Champion Chevrolet for a service advisor. And I know these dudes that are working there because I'm I'm having interactions with them at work. And um, they're making... 40, 50, 60,000 a year. And I'm like, okay, like I'm going to apply for this. I'm and now you got to think about how ridiculous that is. I'm a minimum wage employee who's 19 years old. I'm at the lowest tier of the totem pole, right? At, at the dealership. And I, uh, I basically go to him and I'm, I go to my first boss. His name's Dwayne Gross. And I'm like, Hey, I want to apply for this position. Like I type over a hundred words a minute. I'm highly intelligent. I learn skills incredibly fast. If like, not only will I do this job, I promise you I will end up being one of the best at this job. That's just how I pride myself. And he's like, no way. You're a young kid. You can't represent the company. Like that's basically our front line to the customers, right? Like you are the brand of Champion Chevrolet. And I'm like, all right, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I go to his boss and his boss is a man named John Patricus. He's like the, you know, regional director or whatever his, his job description would be. Him and I have a good relationship. He just likes kind of the character that I have. And I go to him and I say, John, I want to apply for this job. Dwayne told me that I cannot, but like, I'm going to crush it, man. And I'm going to be one of your best employees. And you're going to be, a, you're going to appreciate the fact that you gave me the opportunity and I'm going to be successful. And he's like, sorry, man, I, I can't put a 19 year old out on the lane. Like, you know, you're one of our porters. You work super hard. I appreciate that, but it, the door's just not open for you. Well, anyway, let's tie back into that lens story. So then I'm kind of pissed about it. I'm like, man, like give me an opportunity and if I can't handle it, that's fine. But like I'm motivated, I'm, I'm energetic, I'm good with people. So anyway, the next day that Len comes in, I see him walking through the shop. You know, he's wearing like a $20,000 suit. He's got his coffee and I'm like, I'm like, today's the day. Like today's the day. I'm So I'm going to go to this guy and, and, and kind of, you know, ask for this opportunity. So I wait till he goes back up into his office and nobody interrupts this guy. Like you just don't go up and knock on Len's door and interrupt him. But anyway, 
I'm like, all right, today's the day. So he's up in his office and I, I just go straight up. And I don't know why I had this type of delusional confidence, but I've had it my whole life. And I just went up and I like knocked on the door and I had already come up with a game plan. And he's like, hey, what's up, buddy? And I was like, Len, you have an open position for service advisor here at the dealership. I want to make you an offer. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I want to work this job for a month for free. I will I will be here from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. or 7.30. Some nights we had to work to 7.30, sometimes 6, 6 o'clock. Don't pay me. I will do the job better than anyone you have out on that lane by the end of the first month or just don't hire me for it. Give me the opportunity to prove myself and prove that like it will be a great decision for you to bring me on board with that company. And he's like, you're going to work for a month for free. You're going to be here 72 hours a week, some weeks, just for an opportunity to try to get in the spot. I was like, yep. And he's like, I love it. Jumps up, walks me down to my boss's office. And he's like, hey, you're going to give this kid a shot. And I like, I remember kind of seeing the fire in that guy's eyes because he was the one that told me no. And then I went over his head and his boss told me no. And then I just went to the owner, man. I'm just someone that kicks down, kicks on doors until they fall down. So I went to the guy at the top and I was like, this is who I am. This is what I'll bring to the table. This is, I will prove to you my value. And if I don't have the value, you've lost nothing. You've lost at, you had someone work for you for a month with, for free to try to prove that he deserves that spot. And you know what? People at high level, they, they appreciate stuff like that. If you're an, a business owner, if you're a CEO, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're someone that's really chased passion in life and you recognize that type of passion in other people, you respect it. You know what I mean? And I feel like, so moments like that in my life really opened the doors because now all of a sudden I jump in as being a service advisor and I started making more money than I should have been able to at that age. Because like I said, I type over a hundred words a minute. I'm incredibly good with people. I can, I can process systems super fast. Um, so, I mean, I had my best month ever there. I think at 21 years old, I made $9,200 in a month. So I'm like, all of a sudden I'm getting a ton of money. I buy my first home. I put a 72 inch TV in my bedroom. I buy a supercharged Cobra, the O3 Terminator Cobra black convertible. I'm like living large. And then, uh, I don't know if you want me to keep going on these stories. No, it's great. Let's hear it. This is you. So, so I'm like living the American dream that I was taught from the young age. I'm like, I got my house. I bought a three bedroom, two and a half bath, two car attached garage, like at 21, you know what I mean? So I'm like, life is great. And, uh, and I think that was such a crucial part of my story because I think so many people spend most of their young adult life chasing the idea that when I get to this level, I'm going to be happy and things are going to be good and I'm going to be fulfilled. And they get stuck in this pattern of like, like, I'm going to get there. It's not good yet, but it's because of the fact that I'm not there yet. It's not that I'm running in the wrong race. Hmm. Guess what? At 21, 22, I'm raking in cash. I'm my bad months are five, $6,000 months. Like I'm doing well and all of a sudden I start to put pieces together and I go, dude, the last two years, three years of my life, it's all blending together. It's the exact same thing. I absolutely kill myself from early morning until the end of the day, sitting in a chair, having the most mundane, routine, trivial conversations with people because you just have to... Hey, how are you? Good, man. How are you? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You see the weather. How's the weather? Blah, blah. You do anything? Da, da, da. Okay, what's going on with your car? All right, blah. You're hearing the squeaking noise when? When you hit a bump? Okay, blah, blah, blah. I type the report. I go to the technician. I get their information. I realize, like, dude, 
I, and that's not to knock on people that are, maybe that's your profession. It was so uninspiring and so empty to me that I'm like, I'm going to do this for the next five, 10, 15 years and maybe be a service manager and like get a salary and sit in a different office. And then that's what I'm going to reflect upon. Like, that's what I've made out of myself. That's the life that I created. That's like when I tell my child one day, like, you know, live your dream, follow your passions. That's my, my words don't have weight. I didn't do any of that shit. So I had one of the biggest epiphanies or massive moments of my life where um, it was a Tuesday at like almost three o'clock in the morning, morning. And I can, I, if I was an artist, I could draw you every detail of exactly where I was because it's such a profound memory where it was almost three o'clock in the morning and I could not sleep. And I had fallen asleep on my couch downstairs. I didn't even make it up to my bedroom. I was, uh, to give you a little bit of context here, um, the way jujitsu is still in my story is I would work, I would leave work to go to work at 6 a.m. I would work until 6 p.m. or 7.30 at night. And then I would invite anyone that wanted to train jujitsu, because at this point I've been training for four or five years, over to my house. And I put wrestling mats in my basement. I was just like, it's free. If you want to train, just like come over. And all my neighbors thought I was a drug dealer because like I would get home from work and cars would just line up the road. At one point, we were averaging like 20 to 30 people a night in my basement. So and like and like some of the OGs are still with me to this day, like they're still at the academy and still training. And like it's so unbelievable to see how the story is manifested and come together. But we would literally have so many people that I would teach a technique or we would like do something we were going to drill. Everyone would be like, all right, break. Half of them would go upstairs, be on my carpet in my living room, drilling the technique. And then they would come back down together, ask questions. And then we would have the rolling downstairs. Like it was so ridiculous. I was running a fight club in Fowlerville, Michigan, where we would just like study the best jujitsu practitioners. We would break down the information. We would bring people together with different backgrounds. And like, so that's how martial arts was still in the story. So this Tuesday, I'm laying on my couch. It's like 3 a.m. I was so exhausted after training. I had like laid down and tried to put something on TV, like the average American life, right? Just fell asleep, woke up. And man, I had this like super daunting, depressed feeling. The The feeling that I am very, very familiar with from my younger childhood, which not to go into that a lot, but my mother had committed suicide oh when I was younger. And then I had a girlfriend that I was dating for almost three years when I was on the East Coast and I moved away. We tried to make a long distance relationship work. She fell into a terrible depression. I was super depressed and she ended up hanging herself. She took her own life. Oh and like my God. life destroyed me to a level that like, if like I could do a whole podcast about like the pits of like, if you've never experienced that type of hell in life or that type of darkness and depression and chaos, be thankful. Like, and maybe you haven't yet, but I tell you what, when you hit a rock bottom, it will permanently alter you forever. You will be a different human being. You will have different le levels of gratitude. You, like you're just changed permanently. Well, that feeling came back in and I was like, okay, like what the fuck is going on? Like I make money. I have a nice house. I like, like I'm supposed to be happy now. Like what's going on? And it was like a moment of clarity from the universe that I can't really describe other than like, like I was just given information and it was like you're about to spend your life doing something that you do not care about at all and you're gonna who gives a shit about the money if you're gonna make no impact you're gonna just float through as another soul because i remember at rock bottom 
I'm sorry to be so blunt on this episode, but there's nothing else to really. I love it. I love it. Be as blunt okay. as you can, please. The bluntness is I got to a point where I was going to kill myself. Mm. I like It was like, end your own life or fucking fight back and make something of yourself. It got that dark. It got to the point of like 100%. And I wouldn't even tell people. I wasn't even talking about it. I wasn't like, hey, I need help. I need therapy. I was like, no. The pain's just got to stop. Yeah. It's it's over. There's no like, I didn't get through my dark periods from like hope. A lot of times, I you know, I talk, I do some motivational speaking and I try to help people a lot because I've been in very dark places. Hope didn't get me through. Seeing the light at the end of the tunnel isn't, that's the feel good. Like, don't worry, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know what actually got me through? Fucking anger, hatred for what life had done for me. The chip on my shoulder. The, it, like, it, it was like, end your own life or fuck this, fight back and make something of yourself. And when I woke up on that couch and I looked at my life and it was like, this is what you fought for. You fought so that you can be exhausted every day, get up and work for a job that you don't care about at all. So you can make some money to have a nice TV and a nicer how like this is it this is the james gray that you wanted to create like it hit me hard man and instantly i was like no i was like well then what do you love and i was like i love martial arts i love helping people i love doing something that's impactful i love trying to make a difference how many people out there will get to that rock bottom point that i was at and they'll go the other direction well what if you could make a difference for some of those kids what if what if you could be the man that might have been able to save your life in the darkest spots? That's what the fuck you're supposed to do. That's the man that you're supposed to be, and you're failing. And that hit me, man. And no joke, I fell back asleep. I woke up the next day a different human being. I got up. I looked at myself in the mirror with a different clarity. I drove into work with a completely different perspective at the way that I looked at things. I still to this, oh my God, my wallet's in my car. I'd be able to show you something cool. To this day, I I was sitting at my desk and it was like, it was like being awake, waking up from the first time from a dream, dude. It was like I was in a dream state for multiple years as a service advisor, woke up from a dream. I'm sitting at my desk. I deal with my first customer of the day. And it's like, it's like now all of a sudden I'm analyzing like, this is it. This is what you created. This is what you're supposed to do. And, and the, my business card is sitting in front of me and it says, James David Gray Jr. Service Advisor, right? Like it has my name, sister, and I pick up this card and I'm staring at it and I go, this chapter ends today. And I take the card and I flip it over and there's a song that I won't shout out the song. Um, his music's kind of controversial, but there was a song that was in my head at the time where the quote in the song was, hell is not a place you go if you're not a Christian. It's the failure of your life's greatest ambitions. So, and that's what I realized. Like, there's another quote that's easier to remember, which is the only hell in life is meeting the person you could have become. And it's like, I took my business card. I flipped it over. I wrote that quote on it, like as detailed as I could. Like, you know what your hell is going to be? You want, you want to know what your failure is going to be is if you don't pursue what you are meant to do in this life. And you damn well know what it is. And you know what you're passionate about. And you're a coward if you don't do it. That's how my brain talks to me. Like, it's very, it's not nice. Okay. So I, I put that on my card, stared at it and was like, all right. I walked into my boss's office. I said, Hey, I want to put in my two weeks. And he's like, 
what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you're gonna put in your two weeks? At this point, not only was I service advisor, I had I had uh, become the number one service advisor and I became the guy that was training all the new people that were coming into the company. So when they would hire new service advisors, they would put them with me and I would train them for the different stores and locations. So that like, they were using me as the kind of the model for how to execute the processes. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, nah, I just, I gotta, I gotta try to pursue martial arts, man. I gotta follow something I love. I can always go back to something like this. There's, if I fail, I can come back to this. If I don't try, I'm a failure, period. And uh, he got his boss and his boss came to me, sat me down. Is there anything we can do? No, it doesn't matter what money offer you offer me. It doesn't. I need to do this. And then, uh, yeah, I stepped away from that that uh, business in 2011, I think. And, uh, you know, just a hope and a prayer, bro. I didn't go to school for business. I didn't know anything. I literally found a little space to lease. And, you know, I was like, I got an open. I have to open an LLC. How the hell do I do that? I went to Google how to open LLC. And it was like, you have to file your articles of organization through the state of Michigan. And I'm like, what are articles of organization read through? And I just dedicated my entire waking moment to this is what I'm going to do. And I have no idea what this path looks like, but like you've already been at a bottom, dude, you've already been at nothing and you survived that. So no matter what life is going to throw at you, it is what it is. You're just going to have to take it on and go towards the future, creating something you want. And then, so I took every bit of money that I had saved up and I actually I uh, bought all the gear that people would need to use in advance. I wanted to kill any barrier to entry. So I bought tons of pairs of shin pads, boxing gloves, MMA gloves, tie pads, focus mitts, headgear, uh, mats, like, like everything. I was like, I'm going to take away anything that stops people. And now you got to think, I had not charged one person, even one penny for training with me at my house. And now I'm going to open a location and I'm going to ask for monthly fees. So like, it was a huge jump, started it, rolled the dice. Uh, and you can ask any questions you want. The story had ups and story had downs, but now I've built by far the largest, most successful mixed martial arts program in Michigan. And we're only scaling and building. We actually, you know what? I guess I'll just unveil it on this podcast. My people don't even know this. We have um, we have a massive place right now. We just signed another unit. We're expanding another 4,000 square feet. We're bringing in a state-of-the-art recovery area where we're putting in cryotherapy, putting massage therapy on site, red light therapy, hyperbaric chamber, two float tanks, like sensory deprivation tanks, um, and maybe even a little barber area right in the academy. And like, so we're rapidly expanding and growing. And I'm not far from the point now where I'm going to be purchasing the building complex in its entirety, which is a $2.3 million deal. Um, and we'll have 35,000 square foot of basically like the UFC performance institutes, like model of having everything on site. We're, we're going to be building in Michigan. Now, obviously I don't have the millions and millions and millions that they have to put into it, but for the elements that are necessary and for the integral parts of why that place is so successful, that's what I'm creating. Wow. This is one easy guy. Josie to interview. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Like I said, if you I don't stop so many questions, if you I don't stop, stop me, the I'll go indefinitely. Man. I, was, I, I love was, life. I, I got a quick question. Yes. Yeah. Of um, course. So, in those times, you said you at 2011, you put in your your notice for work. Through that time, there, I know a lot of people that open up businesses, and there, there's moments where you go, "Man, I don't know if this is going to work." 
And I'm sure everyone has had those days. So people listening, what did you do on those days? Like, what was your fight against that? What was in your mind frame to push through when you had those doubts? That's a phenomenal question. And, And the answer might not, like, resonate with people well because I think the darkness in my background was a huge part of the story. But, like, yes that thought is there, but it was like, I don't care. I'm all in it's sink or swim. It's almost like I was going to get onto a ship and I didn't know if there was holes in the ship, but I was like, I'm crossing the Atlantic, dude. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, but like, what if this, you know, what if the engine fails? What if you don't have enough supplies? What? And I was like, then I die on this journey. But like, (laughs) that was my mindset. It wasn't because I think what happens is you get so caught up in the what can go wrong that like do you spend equal time thinking about what are all the things that could go right what if this worked out better than i could ever imagine what if i could buy my dream home and my dream car and provide for my family in a way that i couldn't even imagine beforehand what if i'm able to produce a ufc world champion or make countless people's dreams come come true if i can affect my community in a way that that changes the landscape for the next generation what if i like, do you ask yourself those questions? You know right, what I mean? It's like right. so, so many people are quick to go to all of the fear and what if. And and you know what? Maybe that's because like they're afraid of public ridicule. They're afraid of not being good enough. They're afraid of having to be labeled a failure in that avenue. I just didn't give a shit. Like, like after what life had put me through and I didn't take my own life, I had this kind of like everything else, whatever I have to go through, (laughs) right? Bring it on, man. Because at the end of the day, I can go back. I am not a run of the mill, mediocre. I'm, oh God, another day of work. I'm just, no, anything I try to do, I'm, I'm a very conscientious man. I want to do things to the maximum capability that I'm able to do them. And I want to, one of my secrets to life, like, how do you continue to level up? How do you continue to get better? How are you? buying your dream home. And I just bought a brand new Corvette and I just, how are you doing this? Anytime I make any progress in my life, I treat that as my new base level. I, I, I used to do this with, with my jujitsu. If I won a jujitsu tournament, I would take the medal and I would throw it in my closet. I don't want it to be on display. I don't even want to see it. I don't want to look at it. That already happened. What are you going to do now? I have this mindset of anytime you level up, if that's the peak of your mountain, I hope you're fulfilled. I hope you're happy because as soon as you stop climbing, you're just not going anywhere. And anytime, like I make my first podcast episode, I don't go, oh, I made a podcast episode. I go, how can I improve upon the lighting? How can I make the angles better? What parts of the conversation should I have amplified? You know, what could I have done? Let's look at Joe Rogan's podcast. What does he do more efficiently than me? Let's put them on side-by-side monitors and compare the differences. Let's make a list of everything I do not like about my episode. It's how my brain is wired. So when you're wired like that, you don't fear what comes up because I have to get through it. Like I tell my my, my students, if you want to be a professional athlete or you want to put your life in order, you want to become the best man in your family or whatever it is, and you set out on a path, the moment you hit a major barrier, you don't need a new path. You have to realize that is the path. Can you get over the barrier? Can you get under the barrier? Can you go around it? Can you find someone that can help you get through it? Can can you break through it? Like 
so many people, they hit some type of dead end and then they're like, look, this is the reason I can't make it. No, that is the current stage that you need to find a way to solve so that you are the man that is ready for the next level. It, you know, like in jujitsu, when we tell people you win or you learn, right. well, take that same exact approach for your life. You know what I mean? And like, Fear cripples people, man. And I think, Josie, your question speaks so much to like the amount of dreamers I know in life, the amount of people I know that have a vision. They they know if they could snap their fingers, they damn well know what they would want to do with this life, the type of man they'd want to be, the way they'd want to live, the way they want to speak and carry themselves, et cetera. But all the what ifs stop that. Yeah. You, I'm just the opposite, man. I'm like, no, life You've already tried to break me. It's just not happening. You know what I mean? And like, will I fail on endeavors? Absolutely. But the man that relentlessly seeks will go much farther than the person that says, what if? Right. I think a lot of people focus on things they don't control instead of focus on things that they can actually change. Like you're preparing for a fight. Why are you worried about the fight? Worry about the training. And then when fight night comes, you've done all you can. So that, that those feelings of fear... You don't have to worry about it no more because you can't change. You're going to go in there and you're going to fight, win or lose. There's no change. But It is what it is in so many circumstances. One of the things that, God, it's hard to dump this on people's psychology like this, but you have to get self-actuated autonomous beings to, to accept. Almost nothing's in your control. Right. Like literally almost nothing. Except what like, you can do. Except the, like, the like, training. Like, I'm, the like, when I'm married and I have my wife and like, oh, she's my wife now. We have this kind con- if that woman no longer values me and doesn't want to be with me, she can be gone in ha- half a second. If you control next to nothing outside of yourself and it's like, I want my mother to be, I, 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 I don't want my mother to be gone. Life taught me that like you are strapped in for a roller coaster to some degree that no matter what you want. It doesn't matter. It's not relevant. You don't have control in these things. You're not the master of the universe. You are going to just have to accept the cards as they're dealt, but you can control everything that you do. Exactly. So if you stop focusing outward, yes, your job might suck. This might suck. That might be terrible. That are you reading? Are you leveling up your skills? Are you gaining competency? Are you having difficult conversations with your boss? Are you looking at your own inadequacies? Are you challenging your relationships that you keep? Are you looking at the environments that you take part in? Do you realize that you drink every weekend and you don't keep yourself? Exactly. If you don't like something, you have the ability to to do what you can against it. But all of the power comes from looking at it from that perspective. What can I do about this situation? And if the answer is nothing, then why are you thinking about it? Then just Deal with what you can do. Right. You bring up like your wife leaving. You can't control your wife leaving, but you could control being a better man. You could control, you could control paying attention to her. You could control, you know, doing the things that she's complaining. You know, those are, think about it like this. The fear of losing my wife might make me like, oh my God, that's making me insecure, which will make me not want to let her go out, which will make me like this, which makes me, you know, think I got to control this. I got to do that. And uh, I got to see your phone. Who are you texting? Well, guess what? That man, she won't want to be it with nearly as much as the man that's confident, that's just treating her really well, that's not being. So your fear of the terrible thing that can happen often makes it more likely to happen. It's almost like you're a self-fulfilling prophecy where 
the thing that is so daunting to you, you are manifesting into reality by not, you know how you, you keep your wife? You'd be the best fucking man that you can be. Exactly, because that's level in your control. Up. That's in your control. Because it's you, man. You want to level up in your job? Don't point at the fact that your boss is an asshole. Work Maybe harder. he is or she is. Maybe they are not. It's not relevant. The question is, what can you do? Right. And if if you are flat out pinned down that no matter the level of excellence you achieve, they refuse to acknowledge you and then gain the confidence to leave that job. Why are you there? What are you doing? Great stuff, uh, James. We Josie and I talked earlier about mental health and in particular about someone we know and how the past few years impacted them, uh, not just mentally as far as their mental health goes, but how that can spill over into other parts of your life and in some cases can, um, you know, be the end of you in particular to what we were discussing earlier. Um, James, I, I know you have very strong opinions on that and you have a documented track record of handling that in a, a very, uh, in my opinion, admirable way. I want to get into that before we wrap up the episode. Also, I do remember Turf Wars, the promoter, not to throw him under the bus, his name's Rod Housley. <laughs> it just came ah. to me. <laughs> Rod Housley, does that sound familiar maybe? I thought it was Galvin, actually. My, my brain was like, was it Galvin? It's Rod Housley. It's Rod, Rod Housley. Housley. Okay, before, there you go. Before we get to what I would describe as one of your most, as far as what I've seen, most admirable actions, and that's the way you handled the COVID uh, um, restrictions and how you came through that with your gym, how that happened, could you give our listeners a little bit of a commercial for Scorpion Fighting Systems. Eli Mefford, Peyton Hughes, two great fighters from here in Kentucky, Lexington, so about an hour and away, an hour away from us here in Louisville. They're currently up there with you. They were just on the podcast with me a few weeks ago. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so obviously you're getting people to travel to your gym from across the country. What's the commercial for Scorpion Fighting Systems? Yeah, so I, and not even across the country. I, we've had people, we've had Molly McCann out here several times from England. You guys know Molly. We've had yep. people come out from Finland, Ireland, uh, Mexico, Canada. Uh, Michael Kies has been out. Michelle Pereira, uh, like Juliana Pena. Like we've had people from all over the country and world travel and train at the academy. Um, you know, Scorpion Fighting System, we just have a team of incredibly passionate people that all pour into each other. The number one thing that people say that we're different, because like there's a lot of MMA schools. Next time you speak to Peyton and Eli, say, okay, simplify it for me. What do they have there that makes it successful? It's the environment. It's the ambience. It's the atmosphere. The only people I won't train are assholes. Like, Life is hard enough, and I don't need you being destructive to the people around you. We have passionate people that have dedicated the, themselves to the studying of the craft that they teach, and they care about the people that they teach and mentor. So we have several coaches there, and we have amazing uh, like connection between the leadership, which I think is crucial. Like There's some gyms where the boxing coach doesn't really like the style of the wrestling coach who doesn't like the kickboxing coach's perspective, who doesn't like this and that. And now you got a student in the middle that's being like tug of war trying to trust like, what the hell do I listen to? One of the things athletes need to be successful is, man, they need a trust in a system, scorpion fighting system. The reason I created that name is like systems can be modified and changed over time. This is not a style. This is not like Kung Fu that's been around forever and won't innovate with modern day techno 
uh, techniques and applications and yada, yada, yada. So with that being said, I always wanted Scorpion Fighting System to be something that over time is improved upon. And we're trying to find the most intelligent, strategic way to make people successful. Well, guess what? The way that I train a heavyweight UFC fighter, Josh Parisian, is vastly different than how I'm training Zoe Nowicki, a two-time college national champion wrestler who's an amateur right now, or Spencer uh, Rivas. Like, we individually tailor the game for the student. And I think you don't get that a lot. I think coaches teach their style to their pupils. What I've really tried to stress with all my people is you need to look at the individual and say, should this stocky little tiny wrestler be working on rangy jabs and footwork on the outside? Or should we build more of a Tyson style, get in the pocket, bully them out of the clinch, dominant wall work, ground and pound from the top, well, we have that type of understanding upon all the leadership that like, this is the way that we can build their greatness. It's not about me. Like you will never see James Gray attached to anything in my academy. I don't, I don't ask my fighters. I'm not, don't publicly thank me. If you want to do it, cool. We take the athletes and the members and we try to give 1000% to their progress. And if you do that enough for enough people, the word gets out. I've never spent one penny on a Google advertisement ever, but yet our gym, our class last night, for example, we had 53 people in jujitsu at 6 p.m. Adults. That's like a seminar in a lot of places. That's our average Tuesday night, you know? So when you do things the right way and everybody is invested in the journey, I feel like that's the reason we have something special. I love it. I said earlier and over the course of the past few years, COVID and the restrictions, the lockdowns, whatever you want to say about it, sure. uh, whatever your political persuasion, regardless yeah. of any of that, James, I know without even asking you, same for you, Josie, we all believe a big part of mental health is being physically active, staying healthy. Absolutely. You're a gym owner, James. When, when, when uh, March of 2020 rolled around and they started to implement some lockdowns, some different versions of ways that are impacting you and not only your livelihood, but your, your business, your entire life, I guess. 100%. How did you handle no, I, that? I, I can give your listeners like <laughs> a perfect perspective of how it went down. And honestly, we need to capture this moment in history because everybody's quick to forget. Everybody that, that might have turned tyrannical and authoritarian, totalitarian, you know, all of a sudden you see people trying to tell on their neighbors and not let people be out in the park. Like it was a wild time in history. And I think if we don't learn from that, it is bound <laughs> to happen again. That's where like, you know, some people want to erase history because they're like, well, it's, it's evil. It's not good. It, terrible things have happened. Yeah. Right. Terrible things have happened. And that's how you learn from them. You don't learn from them by erasing them or changing them or not wanting to discuss them. The First Amendment of this nation is crucial because conversation between people is a crucial aspect of a healthy society. So March of 2020, things are going great. Jim's crushing it. People are fighting. I actually had a fight scheduled. I was fighting a guy. Uh, him and I go way back. He's He's got like 20-some pro fights. Josh Robinson, he's a high-level Muay Thai guy, jiu-jitsu black belt. We faced in the expert finals of a jiu-jitsu tournament at one point. I flying triangled him, and he was always like, I'm going to get you. Yeah, I'm going to get that back. Like, yeah, I'm going to get that one. And we were scheduled to fight. We we're supposed to be fighting in April. And uh, and the whole world shut down, right? Like, all of a sudden, it was, you heard little rumblings of something. And then I think it was like March 13th, 14th. They were like, we need to shut down. 
Like there's a global p- pandemic that is going to wipe people out. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, so anyway, I'm an incredibly analytical man. Like, I don't know. I mean, you probably can tell. Like yes. I, my brain, I will not have an opinion on something or I will be quick to say like, I'm not sure unless I have looked into things and I've really ran it through all the different filters and I've tried to play devil's advocate and I look. So that's the way I'm wired. It's the only way I know how to be. And, uh, so anyway, my fiance has an autoimmune disorder, right? Like, and, and it's something where I thought this is going to wipe her out. Imagine a woman who has a severely compromised immune system that if she was to get this global pandemic, I thought, oh my God, like, is my fiance, first of all, because you know my story now, like my mother had died, my first, my first love, the woman I was with for several years had passed away. I'm like, okay, oh yeah, I'm gonna be swinging on God. Like, I'm gonna find a way to get to a heaven, and like, we're we're throwing hands at this point. So anyway, I close the gym down, and not only do I close the gym down, I have a dorm in the gym. I refuse to go to my house. So I was like, I'm going to live in the academy to not put her in danger. So she was in my in the house that we have, and I was like, honey, I'm not gonna come home. I won't see you. I'm not gonna risk. I've been around all these people. I am not going to put you in danger. So now imagine this, my entire, normally, like I have a, my brain is, you know, like I, I like to be doing things, right? So now all of a sudden, everything closes down. I'm at the dorm. I'm 100% alone, right? Master Perez uh, is a gentleman that runs a unit. He runs our traditional martial arts. He's next door and he decides in that dorm, he's going to stay at that dorm. He's like, hey, he's 60 years old, by the way. Uh, he's 61 now, so I think he was like 58 during the pandemic. So he's like all freaked out, right? So everything shut down. Now I have nothing to do. I'm not going to teach any day, nothing. And I'm just, so what am I doing? I'm watching all the news. I'm watching every White House briefing in its entirety I watched from start to finish. The only thing I did was watch this pandemic unfold. And for the first couple of weeks, I was like, this is catastrophic. <laughs> like three to 10% mortality rate. I'm like, you're up to one in 10 of people that get this are going to die. So I start like, how deep do you want me to go on this? Like, this you is, want me to go this is all great. If you're okay on time, okay. this is a 100%, great story. 100%. So, so I literally was like, okay, three to 10% mortality rate. Where did this prediction come from? This is like alarming. So I look up the London Imperial model. So the London Imperial College in England and the UK is the ones that made this prediction. And I'm like, I'm dissecting this from every aspect. And I'm like, how did they make this prediction? What are they using as as their evidence, uh, it's a novel strain. So I have, there's a lot of layers to work through. So then I look at the London Imperial model that's predicting 2.2 million Americans are going to die from this. And I'm like, what? So I'm like, okay, let me look at how they traditionally have done predictions. And, and, and so I start looking at how did the gentleman that modeled the coronavirus model bird flu and swine flu and everything else? Because he put predictions for all these. Well, right off the bat, there was something that really was alarming to me. If you look at this man or the London Imperial predictions on like bird flu, swine flu, H1N1, they were so unbelievably far off that it's almost comical. Like if you would, if you just randomly say a number, you're probably going to get closer to, to than what they predicted for like bird flu. Like after this podcast, you should look at what the London Imperial model predicted for bird flu versus what it actually happened. It was laughable. And I was like, okay, 
that doesn't mean that this pandemic's not dangerous. That doesn't mean the coronavirus or COVID-19 is not going to be, maybe they get it right this time. Maybe, maybe they've gotten it right on several things, but they've also gotten it extremely wrong sometimes. So it gave me like a, a healthy dose of skepticism initially, right? So I start looking at the modeling and then I start looking at the different layers of this. And then quickly in a very short period, they changed the prediction from like 2.2 million to like 450,000. That is an alarming jump, okay? The way you would react if something was going to kill 2.2 million people versus 450,000 is a lot different. And not that that's not catastrophic, but again, it was reinforcing a little bit of skepticism, right? So I'm looking at all the different layers and probably because I'm a professional athlete and I'm a business owner, I have a lot of connections. So I start calling every doctor I know. I start calling all the nurses I know that are ENRs. I got on the phone with three state representatives, Got on the phone, hour-long conversations. I'm talking to our state reps. I'm talking to doctors. I'm talking to these people. I'm talking to all these different things. And I'm studying all the different layers of this conversation. Now, most people, when they do their own research, they like read a couple of articles or a couple of headlines. And they're like, oh, I'm educated on this. And I'm like, I am not going to claim that type of arrogance. So I start combing the CDC website. I didn't even know. Do you know how many, as of like 2019, do you know how many average Americans die every year? How many? What's the average of Americans that die? Like in 2019, how many people die in America? Total people die? Yeah. How many people die? Out of 330 million? Whew, I don't even know. I don't I, know. It's like, I didn't know. I, yeah. I never looked in the death I don't want to guess. Yeah, I it'd sound dumb like, if I guessed, be, I'm yeah, sure. It really would. On average, like 2.8 million Americans die every year. Okay. So I start make what I try to do before I have an opinion on anything is I have to get perspective. Well, perspective comes from understanding all the different layers and angles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So- then all of a sudden, I start saying, well, this is a novel coronavirus. Well, then I break down, why are they pushing novel, novel, novel? Every year's strain of influenza could be novel. If you have a new strain of something, it's a novel strain. Right. But they're really stressing this is a novel coronavirus. Okay, well, maybe it's coronaviruses we're not familiar with. We discovered coronaviruses in the 50s and 60s, and oftentimes coronaviruses were less severe than bad influenzas, and they're just lumped in into influenza in the symptoms of the common cold. Coronaviruses we've known about forever, they're just lumped into the common cold things. People didn't even care to look up coronavirus initially because it normally wasn't even as bad. Influenza was the heavy hitter. Influenza in some years kills, even just on record, over 60,000 people. So it's like, that's and that's every year? People are dying from this. Here is where the wheels started falling off when I decided like, okay, something's wrong here. I was watching the, God, I don't want to mess up the title. I think she was the health. Anyway, one of the high level officials for health um, in Chicago was speaking at a press conference. And she said, we are classifying a COVID death as anyone at the time of death with COVID-19 will be a COVID death. And I went, wait, what? What do you mean that'll be a COVID death? What if what if I get in a car accident and I have COVID-19, you swab me, which the tests came back to be varying degrees of accuracy, and I have COVID-19. Is that a COVID-19 death? Yeah, that is actually how they're class. And I go, no, that's conspiracy. There's no way, because throughout history, when you look at virology and you look at how the Spanish flu was reported or anything that they were trying to compare it to, you would never mislead people to that level. Imagine if I said anyone 
at the time of death with food in their digestive tract is a foodborne illness death. It would make astronomical numbers and it would be so unrealistic and you could scare the shit out of people. So I was like, wait a second here. Let's look at this. I said, where did the COVID mortality death rate come from? Like, like where did they, how did they derive mortality rate? Mortality rate was the number one thing that terrified people initially, including myself. If you say three to 10% mortality rate, I'm like, oh my God, how did they come up with that number? All they did was took hospitalizations with COVID-19 versus deaths. And at the time of death, they just had COVID-19. Well, imagine when a virus is spreading across the world, the amount of people that had that infection. And they looked at how many people were hospitalized with it versus how many people died with it. And they made it a mortality statistic. And I'm like, what is going on? This is not right. So I went back to 2019 and I went, Influenza in general affects 25 million to 50 million people in America. And in one of the years, it was like 61,019 people died. But if I only took the amount of people that were hospitalized with influenza versus the amount of people that died with influenza and they, and influenza deaths are not, if you die with influenza, you died from influenza. COVID death is if you died with COVID, you died from COVID because because you counted you were counted as a COVID death. Anyway, I took the exact statistic on influenza. Like I said, it was like 60 some thousand versus the hospitalizations. And it told me that the influenza uh, mortality rate for whatever year I picked, I think it was 2018, was 6.3%. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's false. That's not true. That's not real. Why? Because you have to take into account every single person that gets the infection. You have to take into account the millions of people that are asymptomatic, meaning they don't get sick. They get the virus, their immune system responds, their health, maybe young, healthy people like us, your body does the work, your B cells, T cells fight it. You produce antigens, you, you heal up and you beat the virus. You have to take into account all the asymptomatic people. You have to take into account the people that have light symptoms that just get through it. How about all the people that have moderate symptoms, but they don't go to the hospital? The people that treat at home, right? Throughout history, up till 2020, we learned that if you have a viral infection, you don't you don't really do much for a virus. You give your body what it needs. You need some fluids, you need rest. Like grandma probably gave you chicken noodle soup, told you to lay on the couch and sweat it out. That's what we had always done. But yet now all of a sudden, we're changing the way that everything works because of, a coronavirus, which we already are familiar with, and we're manipulating statistics. It made me go, okay, something's wrong here. And then I watched Dr. Burks on one of the White House briefings. She got questioned by one of the reporters. And she also said, as of right now, the way we're classifying a COVID death is anyone at the time of death with COVID will be a COVID death. So I realized, okay, you wouldn't do that if you were seeking the truth because you would terrify people without a substantial claim. You would you would falsify numbers like crazy. So here's the two alarming moments where I decided I was going to challenge the pandemic. I have uh, I'm not going to put this person on blast because they really risked their reputation for for telling me this during the pandemic. But someone that works at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing that is married to a family member of mine called me and said, "Hey, I've seen that you're really you know looking a lot into this. You've been asking a bunch of questions. I want to let you know." Not only are you accurate about how they're classifying the COVID deaths, we just had two people die in a car accident. They come, they got a horrible car accident, came in a sparrow. 
We swabbed them from COVID-19. They came back positive. They are going to be in the report as they died from COVID-19. And I went, no, this this can't be happening. That's a conspiracy in real time. Like, why would you mislead? 35 million people went on unemployment. Small businesses got massacred. You could go to Walmart and McDonald's, but you couldn't go to the gym. You like, why would they they do this type of chaotic event unless this is not about the safety of the people and public health? And I mean, and Kelly, if I asked you in 2018, does the government care about your mental and physical health? Like they'll let you drink yourself to death. You can take prescription drugs to death. You can you can be on 30 prescription drugs at the hospital. As you, you know, that's all good. You can do whatever you want. You can. That's perfect time. But they're so concerned with your safety that they don't want you outside exercising at the park with a couple people because they care about you. It seemed ridiculous. Yeah, to that me. So anyway, no sense to me. Yeah, the, 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 the putting the chains over the basketball goal here in Louisville. I brought my 13 year old son, I remember, to the park. He wanted to fucking exercise. And there was blocks over the public basketball goals. And I'm. I remember just thinking like, what? So then I, so then I started to really take things apart and I go, wow, every single hospital that lists COVID-19 on one of their patients gets $13,000 in funding. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if that's a factor. Every single hospital that can put someone on a, every single hospital that can put someone on a ventilator gets 39,000. Let's figure that out. If you put a hundred people on a ventilator, that's 3.9 million. I wonder if money might motivate motivate people. I wonder if there's some people that are motivated by financial gain in this world. Okay, I got a question. And I, started, I kind of want to play devil's advocate. Let's hear it. I love it. I love it. Please, on everything, and, and Josie. I, I, I'm not, I, and I'm very moderate. I'm about this situation. I think what they did was really horrible. I think they were arrogant. And, but there's some things that I, uh, knowing people that were affected by it, so I, I kind of have a, a kind of moderate position on it. But I wanted to say is um, when you're, do you think, so my mother was in the, is in the health. She's a nurse. You know, she's been a nurse for 30 years. I'm wondering how much, how many doctors, like for instance, how many doctors were playing the game as to, hey, if I do this, we're going to get funding for this versus how many doctors were like, no, that's unnecessary. Like, I would want to see... How many took a stand against it? Yeah, how many took a stand against well, like, unnecessary you saw, you saw the doctors use. from Stanford. Remember that? The two doctors, I believe they were Stanford-educated doctors that put out that video that got flagged and taken down by YouTube, which now in the Twitter files, it comes out that the FBI was involved in flagging and labeling misinformation and pulling things offline. I put up a COVID-19 video when I challenged the pandemic orders before I ended up on Fox. I ended up on the national Fox news. I ended up local reporters poured into the building and guess what? YouTube flagged me for misinformation. Right. Although I asked questions, I broke down step by step. I need to know like, why would we do mortality rate this way when we never do? Why would we do? I I was a man asking questions that need to be answered, and they took the video offline. A doctor with one million subscribers shared my video and said, "I want everyone to go watch this." My phone started blowing up. I like I got like three thousand views, five thousand views, ten thousand, twenty thousand. Like it was like like all of a sudden I was like, "What the hell's going on?" And then bam, YouTube took the video down. Right. You can have every conspiracy theory in the world on YouTube. You can have you can have all kind of fucked up things on YouTube, but you can't have a man questioning the pandemic. Yeah, I'm always against that because I always think 
good convert, you know, a bad idea is com- you know countered by good conversation. A hundred percent. So anyway, anything cancellation I'm against, just because I think you need that open dialogue. Because just because public perception is one way, it doesn't mean it's always going. You look at the '60s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What the public perception of what was right was that black people were two-thirds of a person. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a crazy It needed thing. to be hashed out. It yeah, needed so to be addressed. It needed to be hashed something addressed. So I'm always against that. I'm just looking at a perspective of, like, like we assume most people get, like, if, if you're a teacher, you're going into teaching because you want to help kids, not to get money. If you're going into uh, being a police officer, in general, I think most police officers go in there to help people. You know what I mean? On a large scale, doctors, I feel like they want to help people. So I'm trying to figure. And you would, you would definitely hope. And I want to go further in your question, but you would also think that, like, when we were young, you were told that one of the best financial decisions is being a doctor. Yeah. Were you not? Yeah, that's true. And the, the teacher true. thing too, and the the all of it. I'm I'm teacher, not. Teacher, you know you're not teaching. making a lot of money. But but Police still, it is gonna... it is stability. So I mean, I'm not knocking them. I I love people doing what's 100%. best for them. So. But a doctor, you're gonna make money, right? Correct. And and there are levels of doctors. And what I would say is, it's not really relevant. Like the que- the 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 answer to that part of the question is, if a doctor saw someone die from a heart attack but they listed COVID-19 on the thing, damn well knowing that it's going to get reported to the CDC as a COVID death. Right. That is a problem that if me or you or Kelly was a doctor and we're witnessing, okay, someone gets in a car accident, just like happened to my friend. And someone told us that we need to list COVID-19 knowing that that was going to go on as the cause of death. Could you do that? No, I would never do that. I couldn't either. Like that's so then how do you justify that people did do this? Well, no, I'm not justifying what they did. What I'm saying is I wonder how many doctors would go that for like for instance to putting people on a ventilator, which could definitely kill someone that would never be killed. Like how many are going that far out for the payment versus well, how many people would stand I think up they were listening to their bosses is what they were doing. I would and like they weren't to trying think, to wrinkle everything up. Hundred percent. I would like to think that any good man or woman would not do something if they genuinely knew it was wrong. And let me tell you what, the world was a shitstorm. So maybe they thought that was the best decision right now. Now we look at that as like, I mean, I, I just interviewed a girl on a podcast recently who was a nurse through the pandemic. And she said like, at one point, it was like, if someone has COVID-19 and you know, there's at all of these signs, intubate them right away. Wow. And that's like terrifying now yeah. to think about. Can you imagine we come in with COVID-19, they intubate us? Oh. Like, but anyway- procedure gets passed down. And if you don't want to lose your job, you're going to just follow procedure. Do I think there was a group of malevolent doctors that were doing things to get funding? No. But do but do we need to look at the reality that if $13,000 of funding went to every single time COVID-19 was listed on a patient and hospitals are a for-profit thing. I know executives of hospitals. I know people that are extremely high up in a hospital and they do have motivation to make money. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, oh, so sure. maybe it's not even the bottom of the pyramid. Maybe doctors are like, ah, this is what's gotta go, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't handle the statistics. I'm just like, yeah, they're COVID-19 positive. I'm gonna put it down on their chart. And then way beyond my hands, you know, that turns into a COVID death and that's how it's reported and that's where the funding comes right. from. And Because what are you, you going to do, lie and not put COVID? Like you almost have to. I'm not blaming them for that. I'm just saying when you, if you take apart any type of event 
You have to look at it from every perspective and understand the variables that are at play. So when I saw mortality rate was skewed on purpose because yeah. we, we, we don't yeah. we don't skew mortality rate like that. And then I, I I looked at these different layers of and then anyone at the time of death simply that has COVID nineteen you if you died from cancer Josie and you had COVID nineteen. You are listed as a COVID nineteen death through the CDC, right? No, I totally believe because I believe there's like there's people at the top that want to make money for sure. I just want to know how much the like is my faith in the health. I hate to say it, but it reminds me reminds you know me I mean? the, like, reminds me of the fucking Nuremberg trials. It's because crazy, bro. You look back and you're like, hey, why did you do this? Well, my <laughs> boss told me to do it. I was taking orders. That's- why did people commit the Holocaust? I was taking orders. Why did some of the worst things in human history are when good men and women take orders? Yeah. It, when something's wrong, you're supposed to say, no. So or, what happened to you was on why? Eight? Like, why are you asking me to do why this? Why is you the ultimate mean? question? Yeah. Why is why is the secret to my coaching? Right. The way I coach people to I don't teach you what to do, I don't teach you how to do it. I teach you why you should throw an armbar in this situation, why right. an armbar works, why you, why that is the correct solution. If I teach you what something is, you kind of know what it is, but you have no idea for application at a black belt level. You, you, you don't get it. If I teach you how something works, you have a specific process that you know how to do when the given variables are exactly like that. Right. When I teach you why it is the correct answer and why the technique is functional and all the aspects of that. You'll be successful on your own. Exactly. You don't need the exact variables. Why is the golden question? So anyway, uh, on my Facebook, there's like the, in April 14th of 2020, I put up this really like cryptic emoji thing that, and then at that point it was April 14th. I had compiled enough information and enough questions that I was like, I need to challenge this because taking care of your physical and mental health and exercising and being outdoors and getting sunlight and right. being healthy great for you, you know? is the best thing you can do against virus. Like viruses are not going anywhere. They've been around forever and they're going to stay. So is bacteria and everything. Well, guess what? Your immune system strengthens through activities and good, you know, uh, patterns of behavior as a person. And it strengthens by encountering viruses and bacteria okay so we're doing everything opposite of all the science that we've always had something's wrong so basically as crazy as it is and if you guys want i'll actually i have a a link to the original video i could take you back in time to april 14th uh and send you please do the exact breakdown where it was a i went into my dorm room i was the only one there and again i watched every white house briefing i watched that exchange in Chicago terrified me, and it was before I even got the call because the reporter pushed back to the person and said, wait a second, what if it's not a COVID-19 death? Like, what if they just have COVID? And the woman responded, and I might be able to quote this, I want to reiterate, even if they die by clear alternative sources, they will be labeled a COVID-19 death. That's and I was crazy. like- That's fraud. Like it's that's definitive fraud. Illinois public health director. That was her title. Oh my Illinois God. public health director. Verbatim. And I went, whoa. So then after that, and I had compiled all the information I had, I had all the questions I needed to ask. I go, okay, 
I'm going to do this like a genuine, honest, good man should. I'm going to fucking sit a camera in front of me and I'm going to ask all of the questions that if I don't have these answers, I am no longer just going to blindly follow this. I will follow orders if I believe I'm doing the right thing. If you're a phenomenal leader, I will follow you to the end of the earth and I will give 100%. And if I believe in something, I will do it. But I'm a man and I'm an intelligent man. And I'm, I will never blindly comply. So I turned on my video camera and for, I think it was 21 minutes and like 40 some seconds, I asked questions. I painted perspective. I said, this is what I have found to this point. And I was like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I don't have to be a fucking mathematician to tell you that three times three is nine. Okay. And if the whole world was saying, no, James, three times three is 12, bro. I'm not going to listen to you and I'm objectively going to argue with you unless you can show me some type of insight that I'm lacking that can change my perspective. But if you say you will do this or else, no, I won't. No, I won't. So I put the video up. That doctor shared it. It starts going absolutely insane. It gets like 271 shares in like in like fucking an hour. Like it was going nuts. And I'm like, oh, my God. People are, and I don't really care what people are going to say, man. I know who I am as a person. I'm not afraid of public ridicule. It is what it is. Okay. I need these questions answered. And in that video, I said, so unfortunately with all the things I laid out, uh, I'm going to be reopening my academy. May 1st at this time, these doors will be open and people that need to get, take care of their mental and physical health and need to get out of their house, need to get their blood moving, need to exercise. Like you will have a place to train. And I, you know, and some people hated the bluntness, but I was like, I'm not listening to any more executive orders. I'm not listening to the governor. I'm not listening. If they want to come and lock me up and throw me in jail, that's fine. I will 100% fight this until my questions are answered. I cannot blindly follow. So then I open the, I open the academy and uh, to give you a little bit of a sped up story, um, I got called by the public health department in my community and they were like, you need to shut down right now. Cause I was like the, I was the first business to publicly, there was some people sneaking and like keeping things running on the side. I'm not that type well, of man. I, I was, I was, I, I, I'm not that type of man. I'm not that type of man. If I'm going to open bro, I'm going to broadcast. I'm going to open, I'm going to have the doors. And so anyway, public health department calls me and they're like, Hey, you know, we're going to shut you down. And I was like, okay, I'll be here. And they're like, no, you need to close. And I was like, okay, come close it. I'm not closing it. The, like, it's going to be open. You're going to have to send the state police and close me down because I'm a good man. I've tried to do the right thing in the community forever. I have a great reputation. This isn't profit over people. If I genuinely thought that this story was reality, there's no way I would put my loved ones at risk. There's no way. Okay. But like viruses have been around forever and they're not going anywhere and we need to be able to train. So Anyway, I got called, 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 called. And then the final conversation, me and the like gentleman right below the director, we have like an hour back and forth and I'm going over this information with him. And, and he's like, dude, I don't have any answers to your questions. I'm just telling you, I'm following orders. I have to close you down. And right when he said that, I go, all right, man, well, you know what? I can respect you as a man trying to do what you have to do, but like send the state police. You're not shutting me down. But why and wouldn't then, uh, he take the information that you asked and go to his superiors and be like, hey, these are questions that need to be asked. Answer them before I have to shut them. Josie, that's a, I would have loved that, man, but they weren't interested in the question. Like, It's almost like they didn't want to have a conversation about how ludicrous some of the things might have been. They just wanted me to do what I was told. And unfortunately, one of the biggest character flaws I have is I cannot hide when I don't like someone. 
no matter how hard I try, like I can give you baseline professional etiquette, but if I think you're a terrible human being or you lack character, or I know horrible things you've done to good people or anything like that, I cannot be myself around you. I like, that's a character flaw of mine. And the other thing is I, I will die on principle of something if I believe in it. Right. And it's, it's to, to a level where like one day if, 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 you know, if America became communist and they were like, swear your allegiance to this, that I'd be like, nope. And they'll just kill me. And like, like, I'm going to lose that battle, but it's a character flaw I've had since, since I was young. So anyway, uh, I have a friend who's very high up in the state police and I gave him the, like, I called him and I was like, Hey, I just want to let you know, I know this might get really bad. Um, but I won't close, bro. I promise you that. Like, you're going to have to come and take me away in handcuffs. And I don't care what the res- I'm not going to fight bad. I'm not mad at you, but I will not just blindly comply. And he's like, bro, I've heard waves. Of, uh, I've heard some talk that it looks like that's going to happen. Like, I just want to know that, like, want you to know that I have so much respect for you. I know who you are. I know you're not doing this out of malevolence or anything like that. But uh, we'll see what happens. And then I got told that the state police were going to be at my academy, uh, I think, like, the 7th or something like that through someone that I know. Of May. And, yeah. And as ridiculous as this is, not only was the gym open, I set a chair up out front, and I put two cameras. Fucking and I was just waiting. I was like, okay, cool. I had a book I was reading. And I was like, when they get here, like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to anything like that. But I'm going to ask questions. And I'm going to make sure, like, all of you better remember this. If this comes down that you were blindly willing to take orders and follow things and throughout human history, that's one of the biggest atrocities that can be committed is when good men and women blindly follow orders and uh, the state police never showed. Wow. So at like 3.30 in the afternoon, I've been sitting out there since 10 a.m. Oh, that's great. I called the health department. Where are they? I'm like, I'm like, I've been sitting out here all day. Like, where are this? Like, are they coming or not? And then, no joke, and I'm not going to put this man on blast because he could probably lose his job. He goes, let me call you right back. And he calls me from his cell phone. And he goes, anytime you speak to me on the health department line, it's recorded. And anything that's said can be used however we need to, right? I respect you for what you're doing. But, like, please, can you just tone it down? Is there any way you can just stop? being so public like like because he's just stuck between his bosses yeah. like you will enforce this and he told me he's like i respect like you're not just some man saying you know you i'm not listening to you you genuinely believe in the stance that you're taking and he's like i'm not going to take any more action against you just please tone it down and then uh you know i it's not like i blatantly tried to blow it up but then dude the moment reporters and stuff found out that i wasn't closing yep. and there's this evil asshole tyrant you know whatever right-wing extremist like whatever they wanted to label me as like i'm a man that net at, at that time i think i was 33 i had never voted in a single election my entire <laughs> life i'm like politics is so fucked and i don't know any of them and i don't want to be involved in that right. setting at all ever yet they were labeling me like this guy must be i'm like what it's but weird anyway. how they do that they put one on one side of the other. So then reporters poured in. I had Channel 4, Channel 7, Ann Arbor News, WHMI, like, you know, like, who is this evil man type deal? And uh, and anyway, to expedite it, I ended up on the National Fox News. I ended up going and meeting with, like, uh, Carl the Barber, who got, you know, harassed like crazy. He was one of the public figures that challenged the governor uh, here in Michigan. There was a girl named Shelly Luther who went to prison in Texas for that week for opening her salon. And... Uh, Anyway, you know what the insane thing is? They find Carl. They hit him with all these things. They, you know, they, 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 they attacked him. They put Shelly in jail. All these things happen. 
Not a single thing ever happened to me ever, despite me publicly being on all these news reports and everything. And to be honest with you, I think the reason, and this is speculation, but if you put me on a camera and you talk to me about this, especially at the time when I, it was my whole world, like you got to think I'm remembering from three years ago now. And if you really, I could lay it all back out, but like, I'm incredibly articulate. I can break down things in conversation. I am not afraid of a mob or emotional people. I will have a dialogue with anyone. I have no fear of like, I don't have skeletons in my closet. They're like, oh no, I can't be on the sky. Like, so if you put me on the news and you ask me these, guess what? I'm going to ask those questions publicly. And you're going to have a bunch of people that might go, that's a good question. Right. Like, why are we doing this? Versus you have two other people that were just completely defiant. Like the, the barber's like, you're not my mother. I'm not going to listen to you, governor. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to cut hair. Shelly's like, I, I don't give a shit. I'm open to my salon regardless. And I'm like, guys, if I genuinely believed in the narrative, if I genuinely believed in what was going on, my building would be closed. I haven't seen my fiance for six weeks because I was terrified that she would lose her life if I was around her. I subscribed to it. But then I realized, wait a second here. Every single detail that I look into with enough depth has these alarming right. problems and questions that need to be asked. So if they would have come and jailed me or like done something to me, they would have just elevated my platform. I would have then got to ask these things to a much larger level. So I think they were kind of just like, leave that guy the fuck alone. Like, and then anyway, the sheriff ended up uh, reaching out to me. The sheriff from our county was like, I just want to let you know, like I saw your video and everything. I back you. You're right. I'm not doing anything to you. Like, so and it's going to have to come from above me. I'm not going to take a stance against you. Da, da, da. He actually came in and did a podcast with me while restrictions were still on. Wow. So anyway, long story short, 2020, one of the craziest times in history. Um, but you know what? It was a good period for me because I've always, always believed that I was a man of extreme character, that in times of adversity, in wild storms, that I am someone that would stand up to opposition regardless of what that opposition looked like and would try to do the right thing. Well, guess what? 2020 got to prove that that was true. A lot of men live in the fantasy worlds, like, you know, people that are not fighters. If I ever got into a fight, I would do this. And like, red. <laughs> you're able to keep that story and you're able to sleep with that story and make yourself feel good because you're never really tested on that story you tell yourself. In 2020, I had a lot of opposition of very powerful people that I don't even want to be against. Like, I don't want to be against the governor. I don't want to be against these health departments. And like, like, what do you talk? I want to be a good member of the community. But I found out that I am what I claim to be. And that was a very empowering moment. You know what I mean? That was a very like, you know what, dude? Maybe you are the man that during some of the darkest times in history would have been like, no. There's a very famous painting or picture, not painting of everyone in this Nazi crowd and they're all standing with the salute up all of them, like this sea of people like the Nazi reign was one of the most horrific things that you can recall they're all standing with their hand up and there's one man in the crowd like this and you can find this picture online you could have like one man crossed arm like however you would search it and I remember seeing that when I was a teenager and being like I believe I'm that type of man. I believe that if the whole world was against me, but I genuinely believed wholeheartedly that it was not the right thing for my family or pe for people that I love, that I would fight back. 2020 showed me that like, first of all, you're going to face ridicule and you're going to face chaos and you're going to face all kinds of stuff, but you should do the right thing regardless. And if you can learn how to be that type of man, you'll stand in any opposition. You'll fight any storm because 
I don't need to be right. If someone could have came to the table and showed me that I was incorrect, I w- that's fine. Then I would, oh, wow, I never considered that. But when I found that every question led to a dead end to people being like, we don't really know why this is being done like this. Every doctor, every state rep, everything. And I recorded all those interviews. I hope to at one point, maybe five, 10 years down the road, I have an external hard drive, which may be like, hopefully I never lose it or anything. I have every video I recorded during that time. I have all the conversations. I even have a notebook. Hold on. I might have it here. <laughs> this guy's got some passion. Yeah. It's I either love it. here or it's at the gym where I have every single stage of the pandemic written down. Hold on. You guys would go, oh my God, if I can pull this up. <laughs> Just a bunch of notes. Uh, a journal, a journal. Like you you knew something substantial was happening, and you wanted to document chapters it. That they went through, yes. like when they would change the story on a regular basis, and then this would become that, and then all of a sudden, now the focal point is this, and now it's not. Now it's just new cases. Now it's not the mortality rate anymore because that is plummeting as the real statistics are coming out. It's it's like under a percent. It's falling, 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 falling. So then it was all about cases. Now it's all about just test everyone. Well, guess what? If you test everyone for influenza every year, you get up to sometimes 25 million. What is that even relevant? If it's not much of a threat, because what happened is they had the contagion factor way off. So the virus had been so widespread and everywhere. So when they were looking at hospitalizations versus deaths, it was insanely misleading. And I genuinely believe that people at the top know that. I, I hate to say that, but I highly doubt that the people that are experts in virology and the most intelligent minds in the world couldn't easily see that if you don't add in asymptomatic people, if you don't, bro, coronavirus was getting to the homeless populations, people on ships at sea, it's worldwide, it's everywhere. You would make the report realistic unless you were trying to drive a reaction. And if you scare the fuck out of people, they will do anything. They will tell on their neighbors. They will hug their grandparents through plastic. They will walk one way down an aisle. They will, you know, like I remember being at the airport. I can't believe I didn't get arrested. And I would refuse to wear a mask. I would refuse. And I'd be like with Parisian or something. We'd be like, you know, going to go to an event or whatever once things started. And I was the only person I, and I had everybody staring at me like I'm this terrible human being. And it was like being in a dystopian sci-fi film. I'm looking at all these people and I'm like, it's not their fault. These are good people. It's not like, oh, you're all sheep. You're idiots. No, these people have been terrified so badly that they believe they are doing what is right. And they think I am the evil tyrant. But you know what? If you have to paint me out to be the bastard and it even just gets you to ask some questions or maybe in the future you're sitting in 2025 and you're looking back at 2020 and you remember that one fucking guy that walked through the airport without a mask that I thought was the biggest piece of shit ever? What if he had just done... What if he had asked the right questions and looked at things and didn't just blindly follow? Maybe I should try to be like that more in the future. And, and, and like, a, God, I'm so mad that I, I'm going to find this notebook right after, uh, it might be at, at my academy, but I have, uh, I'm going to look for one more second. Sure. No, I'm intrigued. This, this, this is Josh. I met him back in 2014. I was like main event. Oh fuck. This fight fell apart. I saw everybody was pissed off. I saw he was pissed off. I was intrigued. Okay, that was 2014. Right. Then come 2020, Corona starts happening. All this chaos happens, and I'm watching the news. I'm seeing social media, and I'm like, "Oh fuck! I remember that guy. Yeah. He was you, James. You were blowing up. 
Yeah. You, were, you were blowing up with that for whatever reason. Did any other MMA coaches or anyone take a stand quite like what you did? I don't remember any of that. Okay. I, I remember way later the New Jersey guy and stuff, but like, um, I'm going to send you guys the original video after this and it'll, it'll probably freak you out because you're going to think I had that perspective on April 14th of 2020. Cause like a lot of the stuff that I say in the video now, I mean, they were letting violent offenders out of prison if they had COVID-19 or suspected. Think about that. They let rapists out of jail. You care about people. You care about the state. That's not a conspiracy theory. That took place. You care about people. You're going to let murderers out of prison. Does that make sense? Should that make you ask some questions? There was all of these different layers that I was just like, this is a period of time to learn from. This is something that if you would have went back to 2019, you tried to tell a story about 2020, about what was going to happen, you would be put in a mental institution. People would say, what is wrong with you? That can't happen in the United States of America. And then it did. So it's like, that's a period that I'm fascinated by. I will find this. Uh, I'd love to see point. it. If you have any type of documentation of it, send it to me. I could because on my first page, I labeled all the different chapters. I labeled like when they were talking about cases. And then I have a part of the book where I wrote all the fucking bullshit that they were saying down. And then as it unfolded over time, I wanted to capture the story in its purity because listen, history is written by the victors. The, the major media companies and the people that are at the top will tell the corona pandemic however we uh quarantined and locked down and put masks on people and saved the united states population and you know we were it was a humanitarian effort that we really did the right thing yeah we had to destroy you know countless small businesses and and we made record profits for the top uh you know 1% of companies and actually the largest sum of money in the history of the world of politics was moved six trillion initially and then more and more and more and more but guys that was uh you know necessary it wasn't just all a part of it no one trillion dollars for the people that don't understand that number is one million millions take a million dollar pile of money put one million of those piles that is $1 trillion. Could your, could your brain even comprehend how big that is? Not really. $6 trillion because of a virus that if you have comorbidities and you have a lot of you know health problems is a major risk to you. Guess what? If COVID-19 is a major risk to you, so is influenza. So is most of the shit in the world. So is a bad pneumonia. If you are in poor health, you can get wiped out by things. Is it hard to hear that? Yeah. What's the best thing you can do for your health? Exercise, get good sleep, eat better food, take care of yourself. So you let yourself get to the point, and not that everyone does, some people have health issues genetically and all, but all of a sudden now, because of the state of your health that you're in, you're in terrible shot, the whole world needs to shut down and we all need to be blindly compliant to something just because we're told. I just disagree with that. I just disagree with that adamantly. And it, everyone knows now, like look at the people that die from COVID-19, there are exceptions. But why did children massacre it? If kids were dying left and right, that would have been on the front of the news. During H1N1, you remember during Barack Obama's presidency when H1N1 was here? It was killing way more kids. Look at the number of children that died from H1N1. It was wiping out kids and people. No lockdown, no pandemic. Spreading all over the place. There was all over the news. H1N1, bird flu, swine flu, uh, Ebola, this, 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 this. 
But yet COVID-19, the time where we misled everyone with statistics, the time where we approved more funding than ever, the time where we had to blindly comply, it just doesn't make sense. How big do you think the media's role played in highlighting people that had your not your same issues, but something around the same issues, but had no idea what they were talking about mm. and lumped you. It's just people, being dumbass redneck people who have legitimate concerns in with these people and how much, if they didn't do that, do you think the message and the way that we went about the whole pandemic would have been affected? Do you think Josie? That- one thousand percent. I agree. I did one. I did one interview with a news station here. They interviewed me for twenty five minutes straight, trying to ask me like the sharpest questions possible. And I, no emotion. Like I'm more fired up now than I was then because I was like, no, I'm not going to get painted to a corner to be this evil demon that they want me to be that doesn't give a fuck about people. And I just systematically took a qu- with information, and they filmed me for twenty five minutes saying that hey we're gonna cut segments we want you to know and then didn't air one second of it and the last fucking question that the woman asked me is all right james uh my final question is and i'll never forget the way she looked at me and the way she said this she goes my final question for you is um how are you gonna feel when you know that you could have contributed to the deaths of all these people because you could have had the virus and spread it to them without them knowing and you know and like I just want you to know, like, what is it going to feel like to know that you killed people was basically the question. Like, that's not the exact way she said it, but it was extremely close to that. And it's like, honestly, how many people have you killed by spreading influenza to them throughout your life? How many, how many people have you killed? You, you walked by someone, you had a little bit of symptoms, the virus passed they They went and saw their grandparents the next day. Their grandparents were in their eighties, were 85 years old. They get that influenza influenza and they died. How, how could you live with yourself? How did you get through that? It's ridiculous. What about the people? And I said this to her. I said, what about the people that jump in their car and they, they're driving on the way to my academy and they die in a car accident? Man, like that was my fault. Uh, man, like if it was, they wouldn't have been coming to my academy that life has risk. 2.8 million people die every year, no matter what. And now it's up to like 3.2. And well, the United States population is growing and growing and growing. But you can see throughout time, deaths happen. Life's not, people die. And right. is it terrible? Yes. If we could snap our fingers and eliminate all risk, we should do that. But we can't. And we can't put ridiculous guilt, blame, et cetera, et cetera, on the people where it's not it's not deserved. You know what I mean? And so many people are so terrified of being labeled bad people or doing the wrong thing that they like shut their brain off to common sense thinking to like, that's just not how it works. Don't lady. you think and the yeah. media plays such a role in manipulating those? Why did YouTube take my video down? Because I didn't claim to be a doctor. I didn't. I, I was a man asking questions. I'm going to send you the video after. I want you guys to watch it. Why'd they take it down? Could it be that the largest donors to YouTube as a platform is the pharmaceutical industry by far, by far and large? Look at the largest donors to oh, YouTube. I agree with that. It's 100%. Pfizer and other ones. Yeah. Could it be that when you watch mainstream media all through 2020, Pfizer commercial, this commercial, this commercial, this commercial, could that be a factor? I don't know. You're allowed to have every conspiracy theory online. You're allowed to have QAnon online. You're allowed to have the most fucked. You can find (laughs) fucked up shit. You're allowed to have fucked up shit on YouTube. But if you have a rational man asking questions, you better get that down. Yeah. How? That's answer a- answer me why that you know what I'm 
because here's the thing. I am fine with being wrong. You said something earlier where you said conversation is vital because when two people speak, that's how you find resolution. That's how you make progress. So if I said something ridiculous, let's say I was just like, oh, the governor hates everybody and, you know, COVID's a myth and da 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 Everyone would have been like, this guy's an idiot. This guy is an idiot. The reason they took my video down is people were reacting to it. They were listening. They were like, those are some fucking good questions. That's good, are, though, yeah. right? That's good. It should be good. Not, not if you're a pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> yeah. Not if you're about to produce a vaccine that is going to make the most insane amount of money ever. And it's like you have a problem and you're going to provide a solution and you're going to mandate that solution. Think about how many people lost their jobs if they didn't follow the vaccine mandates. People were removed from the military. Doctors. Okay, the people that worked the pandemic to save the people that you care about were fired from their their profession if they didn't take a vaccine for something that all of the studies shown showed you will have less of an immunity to COVID-19 and future strains if you took the vaccine than if you had natural infection and recovered. But yet, no, you're taking this product. And then second booster, third booster. Did you look at the study out of Israel? They did a massive study out of Israel where it showed that natural immunity is like 23 times more effective at protecting you from COVID-19 than the vaccine. Okay, but just to play at devil's advocate, is it true that the, the, the vaccine gave people less hospitalizations Older, sicker people, maybe. There's some groups of people like the, I've heard. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert I, I, on this. Yeah, I'm no doctor, but I've heard that 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 was the big deal. Is that like less if you were vaccinated? And like I said, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I think it's horrible what they did and how they structured the whole episode. But I, I just want to give context for people that might. Have no, I like those, it. Those, those I like questions. the devil's. I actually love devil's advocate. Yeah. I think that's such a. You should never lose that skill, especially as an interview person. You should always understand how to look at things like that. But what you have to look at is. If influenza is a virus and spread to, let's say, 50 million people and this extremely small portion goes in and needs some type of treatment because their body doesn't respond naturally. Right. Then why not let all young, healthy adults that are in the 99.9 survival rate, like you're going to get a way better immunity that is going to lead to herd immunity. The way that herd immunity, do you know what herd immunity is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once so you get a the miracle of, of herd immunity people. is when enough people become you know, protect, like when they've developed the immune response, right. the virus dies down because it can't replicate. You can't hit the viral threshold so that other people get sick because you have a whole population of people that are now protected. So what you do is you allow young, healthy adults and people to get infected, to develop immunity. Most of them will do so without even showing severe symptoms. And then their immunity layer helps pr protect the weakened part of the population. And now maybe what you're saying is like, well, what about the people that they really can't risk a natural infection? Maybe it was the right answer, but is that how it was pushed? Was it pushed that like, it's, oh, just the ultra That's right there. That's where I, I, I'm i 100% on you. It's the way it was pushed. It was pushed and as if was, if you get this vaccine, you won't be able to pass it to others. So if you don't take the vaccine, you're a selfish piece of shit. Yeah. That's how it was pushed. Now everyone who said that, is documented as saying, whoopsie daisy, yeah. that was completely inaccurate. It actually increases the likelihood of, of, of there was passing no the COVID. There was no, no context to any of it. That was my problem. Is they were so arrogant with the way that they, they couldn't be like, 
well, we don't really know this aspect, or we don't haven't had enough time to do this, or like if people would have came with some honesty, I think it would have been rolled out way better. Not an intrude on people's businesses. Not do these mandatory things. Like leave it up to people. Like you said, there's risk. There's risk in anything you do. Like 100%. if people want, if you don't want, if you don't want to take that risk, stay in the house. You know what I'm saying? Isolate yourself. He stayed in his 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 gym so he wouldn't infect his wife. Like, yeah, alone for six weeks he because made I that thought sacri- I was doing the yes. right thing. Yeah, and he, when he found out, he did what he thought was right. That's what. Should have happened. There should have been no mandates, in my opinion. James, you should write a book with all your notes at some point. I have yeah. a feeling it could do well if you document it, 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 all it, this. It would be a fire one because, like I said, the story that will be passed down to the children will be vastly different. It'll be, thank God for the rollouts of the vaccine and the response that the amazing, benevolent government took in saving lives and making a difference don't worry to look at the funding that was moved. Don't worry about where this did. Don't worry about how it affected the economy. We did the right thing. 40%, 42% of black-owned businesses in our country, gone. Crazy. Through the, 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 the middle class got absolutely obliterated. I obliterated. Think, I think we'd be, like, really, like, surprised to find out how much of history really written in oh, such yeah. a biased way. Agreed. Like I'm sh- like who was checking people in the 1400s? And, and you say that cuz James just said uh, uh uh however many years from now they'll look back on this like Trump and op- Operation Warp Speed and then Biden came in and they just saved the day both of them pretty much, right? That's how it'll be 100%, written. Man. Yes. 100%. You know what I mean? And it's it's that's where as men we need to learn from this situation and we need to have healthy skepticism and like Believe me, if I wouldn't have had, if the story didn't have more holes than fucking Swiss cheese, I would have just continued to comply. I would have, I don't think I would have got the vaccine in general because like, do you get a flu shot every year? Do you guys get a flu shot? I have, I think twice in my life. Josie? I have, but it's been a while. Okay. Yeah. I've never once got a flu shot. You know what my body does? It responds to viral infections. And if I get something where I need antibiotics, like a bacterial infection, then I'll go to the hospital. But overall, like I take care of my physical health and my body does the rest. You know what I mean? And like, so to be told that like, you have to do this, you have to do that. You better have extremely good evidence on why not. And now if it was a 10% mortality rate, that's pretty damn good evidence. I don't want to roll the dice that I don't win the Russian roulette. You know what I mean? Like, you know, one in 10, Oh Jesus. Bro, I was predicting back then that like this mortality rate, if you took out people that died with COVID as from COVID, it's not even half a percent. It's like it's it's like a seasonal influenza, maybe a little bit rougher of a strain. But here's another question to ask yourself. Every year, influenza would affect millions and millions and millions and it would kill like go look at the death rates on influenza without it being at the time of death. If you made it at the time of death, it would be astronomical like COVID. Influenza disappeared in 2020. Where did it go, Josie? Go look at the de- go look at the statistics. Like like less than ten thousand people. Like like it disappeared. Like you will laugh out loud if you look at influenza statistics up till twenty nineteen, and then you look at twenty twenty. When COVID came, apparently influenza decided it was long overdue for a vacation, and it completely stopped affecting people and killing people. Because they, they labeled it COVID instead of... Oh, really, yeah. yeah. Why would you do that? To get funding. 
<laughs> to get funding. It's money. You chase the money. And then you look yeah. back afterward, and we're comparing the United States to all these other countries, and we're like, wow, we did the worst out of any country in the Sweden. world. Look at all these people who fucking died. We had the most Sweden, money. Sweden, if they locked down, it was for an incredibly small period, and then they just decided, you know what? We're going to open back up and let our people live completely normal and let their immune system take care of it. And Sweden did none of these procedures and got through the pandemic and got to herd immunity and did all these things. And everyone was condemning Sweden during during that point. Like, they're going to massacre their people. No, they didn't. So, and I'm glad that you guys are willing to look back at this because so many people, they don't even want to talk about 2020 because emotions were high. People were misled. No one wants to feel like they're, they've been deceived. That's like a that's like a human trait. It's like it's much easier to deceive someone than it is to convince them they were deceived. Mm. And it's so true. Like you can lie to people way easier than you can be like you've been living a lie. Mm, because yeah. that is a shattering thing. You know what I mean? If they've thought I've been a good person through this whole time. I got my four boosters. I didn't leave my house. I had all these things go on like i did the right thing and then you have to tell them you were completely tricked by an industry or organization or establishment or whatever it is dude that's a hard pill to swallow and most people can't even sw swallow the 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 tiny pills in their life that like your job sucks you should do better your relationship is shit like why do you not communicate with you? like they can't even swallow those pills to turn their life around and you want them to swallow the pill of like you've been misled to this level it's not gonna happen that's why people need to do jujitsu. <laughs> I love it. People need people need their ass kicked and to be humbled. Like okay. when you're humbled, it, I feel like it's easier for you to be like, you know what? I might be wrong. At Agreed. This point. Let, let's talk. Agreed, 100. percent James, before we wrap up the episode, I got a couple quick questions. What's the name yeah. of your podcast? Uh, the Gray Area Podcast. It's on YouTube. If you just uh, YouTube.com/slash James Gray Area, uh, I think I have 146 episodes on there. I've got some incredible. Oh my God. Some of the episodes I like veterans, professional athletes, Emmy award-winning directors, all kind of stuff. One guy uh, talks about an ayahuasca trip that completely changed his life. Like I've had some incredible episodes on there. And uh, if, you know, if people are fans of long form dialogue, I have a lot of that on there. And if you, you know, I'm a really personal guy. If you shoot me a message and Hey, this is the kind of the stuff I enjoy. I could even point you to some of the episodes that you might really like. I actually tell a lot of my story on episode 100. I was trying to find episode 100 guests. I really wanted to fly Kiesa out. He had his wedding the weekend. I wanted to shoot it. And I was like, obviously going to be away. Um, so my buddy, Chris, who's a dude worth eight figures at like 30 years of age, he's worth like 60 million. He drives a Lamborghini Huracan. He's like, he is such a titan of industry in this area. Um, he's like, well, why don't you get in the chair and I'll interview you? I'll ask you some of the questions. So episode 100 is actually, I was on my own podcast and I like no script at all. He just came at me and different questions. And like, it was a pretty cool one, man. It was pretty cool. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the last questions also is James, how many, approximately how many MMA fights have you ever cornered? <laughs> if you I, had to guess, I get it. If it's you know, I couldn't tell you. You've that. cornered a lot. Cornered yeah, for a few, not not as many as James him, probably. Five hundred. Five hundred. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How how many in the UFC? Uh maybe twenty, twenty five, maybe more than that. Twenty to thirty, I would say. Uh but I, we've been. I've cornered. I, I've been to Brazil five times, Tokyo or uh, Japan four times, China four times. Ireland, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, Africa. Wow. Um, 
all with like cornering fighters, like wow. all over the place. Ryzen, Bellator, I mean, everywhere. Uh, I've been coaching like pretty consistently for, you know, 11 years now. And imagine how many people, have, like if you go to the topology for Scorpion fighting system, mm-hmm. just go, just pull that up real quick and like just scroll down a little bit yeah. and realize that like a lot of people when they left the team, they're now listed under another topology. But just scroll it. That's just direct people that are still listed under me. And then on top of that, um, I've cornered so many times for other people. You know what I mean? Like I like I did did a part of somebody's camp and I went and cornered for them and et cetera. What is the biggest single fight? Only this is one specific question that you have ever cornered. What's the biggest win that you've ever cornered that your shining moment thus far? I know there's more to your life than that. But when it comes to specifically you being an MMA coach, what has been your shining performance thus far? The one, well, the ones that have really stood out, one of them is not a win, but I remember the moment so vividly. Um, and so I'll talk about that one first is I had never up to this point cornered in a UFC main event. And uh, so I was with Michael Chiesa. He was main again, main event against uh, Kevin Lee at the OKC, which was completely packed out. And I remember like, I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And it was crazy because Kiesa had did a camp at my gym, but Kevin Lee had come into my gym before and trained too. And it was like, it was crazy. And uh, Kiesa grabs me right before the main card starts. We're in OKC. The crowd is like insane. And the main card's about to start. And that song Teenage Wasteland will play in the arena. And he's like, yo, come with me, come with me. We run out in the arena. We're like standing cage side. And all the highlights from the UFC's history, like, you know, Holly Holm head kicking Ronda, Connor knocking out, Jose is playing, the crowd's going insane. That moment still gives me goosebumps because it was the first time that I was like, like, okay, this is main event in a massive arena. People are going ham. Like, this is really crazy. Um, that one was really a special moment. Like, I remember that vividly. But I've cornered at like the Saitama Super Arena in Japan, which is like the legendary Pride Stadium. I've cornered there. I've uh uh, Michelle Pereira's MMA debut was an incredible, I'm sorry, UFC debut was an incredible moment for me because I was fighting down in Brazil for, uh, an eight man world title tournament where you had to fight. So I fought a guy from Brazil. I think he was five and one or six and one as a pro in the first round. I put him to sleep in the first round. I moved on to the semifinals. I fought a guy from Mexico. I beat him. Like, so it was, it's, it's, it's a tournament tournament to fight. And, uh, in the same tournament was Michelle Pereira. He was in the 170. Uh, eight-man tournament, and I was in the 135. I was the United States representative. He was in the 170, and uh, I can speak Portuguese well enough to get by. Like, I can speak Spanish well enough to get by and Portuguese well enough to get by, and we became friends down there. We're like, I don't know why, but our energies just clicked, and we became really, like, I was hanging out with him whenever I was in Brazil, and then completely randomly, I'm in China cornering one of my girls in a world title fight for Kunlin FC, and Michelle's there. I'm like, what the hell? Like, oh, what's up, brother? Like, you know, and he's like, I want to come to Michigan. Like, I just got approved to come to America. Like, I want to come to Michigan and live and train there for a little bit. And my dream is the UFC. And his record at the time wasn't like anything crazy. It was like 14 and six or something like that. So anyway, and I'm like, if you come to Michigan and you can stay with me, we'll train like crazy. You're going to get in the UFC. Like, you don't have the record necessarily that they look for, but you have a certain thing that you bring to the table that no, he backflips mid fights. 
He's a psychopath. Yeah, like, I've you've seen, seen him fight, I right? See, yeah, I've seen his fight. Bro, he's like, you know, like, when you have the new UFC game and you don't know how the buttons work. Yeah, and like, <laughs> you just hit all the buttons. I cornered him in those fights. Like, I cornered him in his first four, four UFC fights where he's he's backflipping over people instead of just trying to win fights. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I, like, I, I sent a video to Sean Shelby, and I was like, listen, this guy, he's rough around the edges. I'm going to try to clean up some of his stuff. But I'm telling you right now, he's a spectacle. And He's something that if you can hone that talent the right way, he is a freak level athlete, freak. He's a jujitsu black belt. He is so strong that it's hard to believe. I was like, he could be something special. Anyway, long way to answer your question. Um, It's his UFC debut. I put myself on the line with Sean. I was like, I promise you, this guy will shock you. You're going to be glad you signed him. I like put my name on the line. Like I really care about the words that I say. I, I like, I want to be a man of word. I'm, I drive all the way across the country to New York. Cause I had fighters fighting like the previous night. So I cornered all my fighters on a Friday. I jumped in my car. I drove through the night to New York. I get there. It's fight day against Danny Roberts. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like Danny Roberts at the time was hot too. Like he was doing well, you know, like he was really, he was doing well. And uh, so we walk out and here's a video I'll send you guys to Michelle on the walkout starts breaking down crying crying tears rolling down his face and i'm like like this isn't good but it was because like it's the fulfillment of his dream from that little kid in tokuma brazil this super small town and here he is walking out in new york to the ufc like what the hell he's caught crying he's taking off his stuff he's trying to get it together he's hugging his original coach he's and I'm filming this all in first person perspective. It's still online. And I'm like, is this good? Is this bad? Is he about <laughs> to get destroyed? And this fight, not only, I don't think Danny lands a single shot on him, but he ends up running off the wall and throwing a punch, doing a front flip at the blah, blah, uh, throws a flying knee, catches Danny on the chin. Danny stumbles back, straight right hand. Knocks him completely unconscious. UFC debut wins the fifty thousand dollar bonus. Like oh, I man, witnessed so great. the fulfillment. <laughs> the reason that one stands out so much is I witnessed a kid that came from nothing, from poverty, who I met in Brazil. Who? Why in the world do we did we have a connection? Like like. But our our energy just connected. We randomly run into each other in China, and through a conversation, he takes a bet on me like that, like. He could have gone to ATT or Alpha Male or whatever. He was like, I believe you, James. Like, let's try to make this happen. He moves to Brighton, Michigan. He gets his debut. And, like, it was like a, watching a Hollywood movie. Flying knee, straight right hand, knocks the guy out. One of the most incredible moments of my life. And even though, like, he wasn't one of my guys that I built from the ground up. Like, like I trained my girlfriend, Amanda Bobby Cooper. I don't know if you guys remember her. Yep. She's the first and only female fighter from Michigan in history to get to the UFC. No girl born and raised in Michigan that's still training out of Michigan has ever gotten the UFC besides her. She was my girlfriend. And I coached her for five years. So watching her get on the ultimate fighter, watching her fight in the Grand Garden Arena in Vegas or Rio de Janeiro or, or when she fought uh, in Ireland, like in Belfast, those were incredible moments too that I will cherish for the rest of my life. But uh, that Michelle one, I don't know, something about that, like witnessing the human spirit, this man yeah. crying for the fulfillment of a dream. 
I love that. Wow. And then he knocks the guy out like that. Come on, man. Like, it's difficult to like, top that. It's like a Rudy moment. Dude, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like, like every one of Bobby's fights when I was dating her were so emotional for me because I was her coach and her boyfriend at the time. And like, that's a difficult thing to do. And like, like, so every one of those was amazing. So many other people that I've cornered at the top have been amazing. Like Josh Parisian had a couple amazing moments. Like, like when he knocked out Greg Rebello, Greg Rebello was 24 and eight as a pro with multiple pro titles. And we took the fight on three days notice. I got out of the movie theater and my phone had like 13 missed calls from Josh. And I'm like, oh my God, did he get in an accident? Like what the hell's going on? He's like, I got to fight for UFC contender, but I have to answer tonight. And we have to get on a plane first thing in the morning. I'm like, what? And he's like, here's the guy. I pull up Greg Rebello. I'm like, this dude has got 32 pro fights. He was on contender before they're bringing him back. I go, let's do it, bro. <laughs> we fly out to Vegas the next morning. Josh knocks him out in the first round with a spinning back fist. A guy had been with me for 11 years, uh, came in 300 and something pounds when he first came in. I want to be a UFC fighter. Knocks the guy out, gets on the ultimate fighter. Now he's in the UFC. He's on like his eighth fight in the UFC. So, I mean, there's been incredible moments, but... Something about witnessing a grown man cry as his dream comes true in real time, and then he accomplishes the dream. I don't know if you can top that. Wow. Great stuff, James. Josie and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I hope to speak with you again at some point in the future. I hope you enjoy Eli Mefford and Peyton Hughes. I know they're very excited to 100%. spend some time, represent Kentucky uh, there at your gym. Uh, thank you very much for your time, James. No problem at all. Like I said, I'm going to shoot you guys that video right now from 2020. Do me a favor. Watch it and realize that that was, I have none of the information that came out after that. That's from 2020. You know what I mean? And yet, wait till you see all the questions I asked. You're going to go, this is disturbing. So maybe I will put that book together one day. Thank you guys very much. I enjoyed the time. Uh, and, you know, best of luck in all your endeavors. Great to meet you, James. Thank you.